Hi, this is Takeover Tuesday, and I'm your host, Dermot Buffini. And as you know, once a month, I take over The Brian Buffini Show, and I interview people who've been there and done that. People who've achieved superior performance in different areas of life. I want to know what makes the person as much as what makes the success. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Levy. And David has been one of the top neurosurgeons in San Diego for the past 20 years. He's an author and is a much sought after public speaker who speaks all over the world on topics such as stress, burnout, and the effect that they have on the brain. Now, a few years ago, I was at an event with my brother, Brian. David was one of the speakers there. And after hearing Dr. Levy speak, I was really intrigued by what he had to say. And we went for lunch a couple of times. We went to Buffini and Company and had a chat not just about his work as a brain surgeon, but about the brain, how it works, and how we can take care of our brains. And I thought, you know what? He'd make a fantastic podcast guest. So I'm happy to say he's with us today. Dr. Levy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. It's really good to be here. I'm really, really excited to talk to you today because I never thought ever I would speak to a brain surgeon. And there's a lot of people listening from Ireland who will be wondering, how in the heck is this going to go? Because he's talking to a brain surgeon. But I'm going to give it a go. There's a lot to cover. There's a couple of things I really want to get into today. One is kind of like, how did you become a surgeon and, and the work of a brain surgeon and how you prepare yourself to do that work? But also, how do we nurture and feed our minds? And what are the things that we can do to positively impact our brains and maybe become aware of some of the things that we're unintentionally doing that negatively impact our brains? So that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today. But before we get into it, where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, a little town of 800 people, farming community. I was actually born in California, but we moved quite a number of times because my father was a chemical engineer. He was actually an immigrant. I know Brian's come out with a book recently, Mm -hmm. came over avoiding the concentration camps. He was Jewish and came over uh, during the war. Mm. So he married my mother, uh, who was not Jewish, and I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, kind of trying to get away from everything. I was very creative as a child. I was very curious. I can remember when I was about four or five years old, I saw my dad lighting the charcoal briquettes and, uh, with the uh, lighter fluid, and I decided that I wanted my own fire, so I went out behind the house, right near, about a foot away from the porch, and I poured all the lighter fluid down. <laughs> Fortunately, the grass was green and did not, but the neighbor saw me, and uh, my mother came and, and, and halted my ability to start that fire, so I was very, very aggressive. My father lacked confidence. Mm. But what he lacked in confidence, I had in confidence. Oh, wow. And so I really wasn't afraid of, of anything, mm-hmm. which has its drawbacks. So you're a little adventurous child. Have a go. I was. Well, remember Evil Knievel was yeah. jumping those motorcycles? I tried that and have a lot of scars to show for trying to get my bicycle <laughs> to go that high. That's funny. So did you always knew you were going to end up in the medical world or what was the journey like to get there? You know, I didn't. I I finished high school. I was sort of lost. I Mm. did reasonably well, but just had no particular motivation. And my parents, who really couldn't afford to send me to college or university and didn't want me to go if I really wasn't going to apply myself, suggested I go to vocational school for auto mechanics. Oh, wow. Because I I had an aptitude for fixing things. Mm. I was working at a a gas station. And it's interesting. My aunt sent enough money for me to start my first quarter at the local college just because she really wanted me to go to college. I was working at a gas station and the station owner's son was going to take the medical college admission test and I had never thought about becoming a physician, didn't even know they had a test you could take to, <laughs> to be one. And I remember you know, 
sitting out there talking to him about that. My car was happened to be making a funny noise at that time. So I thought, you know, I think it's coming from the transmission. So that weekend I was under my car and I took the transmission out, which sort of shows you how bold I was. <laughs> <laughs> and with the transmission sitting there, I, I didn't find anything that made that noise, but I had this, I would call it an epiphany, that if I could fix cars, I could fix people. Mm. Well, I put the transmission back together and it still made that funny noise. <laughs> 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 Nonetheless, I went to the pre-medical advisor's office and said, I want to be a doctor. How quickly can I do this? I'm 17 years old. He says, well, depending on what you want to do, it takes a lot of years. I said, look, I want to be through with college in two years because I was 15. And if you want to be a neurosurgeon, it's 15 years after high school. So basically, wow. it's going to be essentially twice as old as I was. Wow. And I said, look, I, I need to get going. I, I want to start operating right away. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up finishing college in two years. So I cut a few years off of it, wow. but it still took 13 years from that point to go through college, medical school, and then seven years of residency to do neurosurgery. So there's not just the confidence to take it on. It was, there was also dogged determination to complete it. I mean, it's quite the process. You're part of a very elite group of people. I mean, uh, from what I understand, it's less than half a percent of all the doctors in the world are brain surgeons. It's a very, very small community of people. That it is. You know, and the other thing is, today you can replace knees, hips, lungs, hearts. You can replace a lot of things. But the one thing that I'm not aware of, and if you can, will you let me know that you can replace a brain? So your client is really pulling for you to do well. But you've also performed, I mean, how many surgeries have you performed, would you say, in your career? Well, I've been at this, what, 22 years. 22 years of practice and I think probably 4,000 or more wow. surgeries. Yeah, yeah, All over the world. I've operated all over the world. I mean, I came out of my residency. I got one of the best residencies for neurosurgery and always driven to do, I guess, the most difficult. So I ultimately decided on the specialty of, of cerebrovascular surgery, which is operating on the blood vessels of the brain, the most technically difficult type of surgery you can do. Mm. But I trained with a professor who was uh, the best in the world. Mm. So I learned this, and I learned it well. They actually flew me to Paris my first year out to operate on a... 22-year-old Italian boy who had a giant aneurysm. Now, an aneurysm is its if your blood vessel has a weak wall. For instance, if you leave your garden hose out in the sun too long, it heats up and it thins out one side. It sort of balloons out on one side. It ends up looking like a snake that ate a rabbit hmm. with this bubble. Well, that's what happens to the blood vessels in your brain if you have one of these aneurysms. Mm -hmm. And they can get thinner and thinner, and ultimately they will rupture, and that will put the blood all over your head. So if you can catch it early enough, in the case of this boy, it was large enough it's actually putting pressure on the other structures of his brain. Hmm. So he went to Paris and I went there to do this surgery, which hmm. you know was successful, otherwise it probably would have been an international incident. Yeah. But, um, that's a lot of pressure, because a lot of people are listening, we all got pressure in our jobs, but that's got to be a unique climate to work inside of. How do you prepare yourself because you're a human, you've got a heartbeat, you've got emotions, you've got to do this work. How do you prepare yourself to do work like that? How do you deal with the pressure? Well, a lot of it is the confidence. I think confidence mm -hmm. helps you, you know, you know you can do it or you know if you're there, you're going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I think it is a very spiritual enterprise. I think uh, certainly when I've gotten into situations, I mean, I can think of one situation with a about a 30-year-old woman had an aneurysm, had not ruptured. She had two kids and her husband in the waiting room. I was putting in the last coil. I should explain to you, one of the 
things that I do is endovascular surgery. So I did a fellowship to not only open up the brain to fix these blood vessels, but I can go through the artery in the leg, thread a little tube all the way up inside the brain, and then fix it through that little tube, hmm. which people enjoy. Obviously, they can go home the next day if it's successful. It's fantastic surgery. Wow. It's on a big video screen. It's a giant, every 14-year-old boy's dream, giant video <laughs> game, high stakes, It's but a lot of pressure. And there I was putting the last coil in, and all of a sudden, I could tell something was wrong with the blood pressure, and I did a an angiogram, which is shooting the dye up, and I saw this volcano, which is, means just blood was pouring out into her head. So I'm watching on the screen actively. This blood is shooting all over her head, and your heart rate basically goes you know, mm-hmm. very, very high because what you're thinking about is, you know, oh, no. Mm-hmm. And typically I'll pray during those situations, but also your mind also quickly goes to, what am I going to tell her husband? Mm. What about those kids in the waiting room? Wow. Right. I mean, you're the surgeon. You've taken this responsibility. This is a 30-year-old mother of you mm-hmm. know two little boys in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of anxiety. I think people wonder why neurosurgeons have a reputation for yelling a lot. But you can see that mm-hmm. stress. when you're feeling that kind of pressure, you often will take it out on other people. Mm. I learned not to do that because it really doesn't help. Right. It adds stress to their workload. <laughs> it adds stress to their load. They're going to make a mistake trying to help you, but they're going to bring you the wrong equipment. So you just talk calmly. That woman, I was able to stop the bleeding. The, you know, the problem was we'd already given her blood thinners. So you got blood thinners on board and you got bleeding. If you stop the blood thinners, the work you've done can also clot the whole vessel off and she'll have a stroke. So you're in the middle of this very tense situation and decided to cut down on the blood thinners, put a balloon up, try to block the bleeding site for a bit, put some more coils in to try to close the bleeding site. Ultimately, you don't know if she's going to survive. You know, So finish the case, take her to the CAT scanner, see blood all over her head, up to the intensive care unit she goes, and you stop in the hallway in the waiting room. You talk to her husband, hey, this is what happened. She had a bleed. I don't really know what to tell you right now. And so for the next week, it's sort of touch and go. Is she going to wake up? And she ultimately, a couple days later, she you know, began moving her fingers and toes. She ultimately made a full recovery, but it took a full week for her before I was convinced she was going to survive. So it's not just about the surgery. So in the moment, your brain is firing because you're thinking, I've got all these possible scenarios, all these things that can happen. You're thinking of the patient. You're thinking of the family. And at the same time, you're having to soothe and calm yourself in order to perform your job. Correct. And then also, it's not just about the surgery. You carried that for an entire week where you're worried about your patient. Right, right. So taking care of yourself, back to your question. So in the moment, breathing. You've got to keep breathing. Mm. Breathing is so it's so critical. In fact, I've done some work You know, on my website. I've got some breathing exercises mm-hmm. to help us with our breathing. What mm-hmm. we do under stress typically is we breathe very erratically. Mm-hmm. We breathe from the chest. We breathe shallow. And that actually fuels more adrenaline into our system. You're in an adrenalized situation. It's like drinking four cups of coffee. You're just, Mm -hmm. and you make very poor decisions when you're under Mm -hmm. that kind of adrenaline. You just want your problem over. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what you want to do in a very sensitive situation. You don't want to be making very large movements. You have the wrong outcome. That's right. And so that's the training. The training you go through is to learn how to handle those Mm -hmm. situations. But breathing, staying calm under pressure is, is certainly part of it. You know, I I am a very spiritual person, so praying, I recognize, Mm -hmm. and I think any neurosurgeon recognizes, 
the people that we thought were going to survive don't necessarily survive. We did everything perfectly, but for yeah. some reason they died. Wow. And then these people that, you know, like this woman, you thought, oh, this is going to be a disaster. They pull through. Totally normal. It's wild to hear your world and what your job is. You know, I've got stress in my job. Everybody who's listening here has a level of stress, but I think that's just kind of, most of what I do is not life and death, mm. you know? So it's very helpful. But, you know, one of the things, uh, what I've seen you do is obviously you've, you're no longer practicing as a neurosurgeon. You've been pulled into this world of speaking. You're an author and you're talking in very practical terms to people like myself about the impacts of stress and this world that we're living in. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to do is kind of talk to you about, you know, you said it there about breathing, but we're kind of unaware of how much stress we're under neurologically. And what I'd love to talk to you about is kind of some scenarios of practical things. Now, I know you talk about self-control and the impact to how stress depletes our ability for self-control. So I know you had a story about the the cookies and the, the radishes, the study. Could you talk about that a little bit? Right. Most of us are are aware when we are physically depleted, when we've got no more physical energy, but most of us are very unaware that we have no more emotional energy. We have no more self-control. In fact, you hear that, you know, a mother of young children will say, you know, I know I'm going to blow up at some point today. I just don't know when. Mm. It's not understanding when your self-control is eroding. Mm. So they did a study. They took the students in a laboratory. They had been fasting for four hours. And in the laboratory, they had just baked chocolate chip cookies in a toaster oven. And so they had these freshly baked cookies. And so the room smelled fabulous of chocolate chip cookies. And they told them, you know, what we're doing here is a taste test. But you didn't randomize to the chocolate chip cookies. There's a bowl of radishes here. You're welcome to have as many of those as you'd like. (laughs) And tell us and just kind of rate the way you think that the, you know, the flavor and all of that. So they left them in the room for five minutes. And when they finished that, they came out and they took a test of how of problem solving. Mm. Now, what they didn't know was that the puzzles they gave them couldn't be solved. And what mm. they wanted to know is how long would they persist? Mm. Well, the people that ate the chocolate chip cookies actually persisted twice as long as the people that didn't have the chocolate chip cookies. Mm. So you might conclude, well, it was the chocolate that gave them the energy. But they actually did a control group who fasted but didn't have either the radishes or the cookies. And they perform just as well as the chocolate chip cookie eating Mm -hmm. students. Mm. So essentially what it shows is that when you're under stress, you want something, but you can't have it. You have to exert your self-control, that it is a depletable resource, that as your self-control deteriorates, and and think about it, you know, this could be, you know, your you know, whatever it is, if it's a, often it is a food item, you're trying to, you know, you're walking by your favorite donut shop and you're trying to diet, you're, Mm -hmm. you know, trying not to spend money on clothes, but you're driving by the mall. Every time you're exerting, have to exert your self-control, it's depleting Mm -hmm. it. Mm. Oh, by the way, driving in traffic is a huge depleter of self-control because you need so much Mm -hmm. focus. If you're just driving at at, at 65, that's not a problem, but driving in traffic will deplete your Mm self-control. So people come home, uh, after you know a day at work uh, is driving in traffic, and they realize that they 're more irritable they, they, you know they, they snap more quickly mm-hmm. well what 's happened is something has been eroding your self control mm-hmm. and I mean dealing with small children that will erode yourself mm-hmm. dealing with unpredictable mm-hmm. my kids have experienced that <laughs> <laughs> anytime you 're dealing with an unpredictable situation, the studies also show mm-hmm. you know they did an, an interesting study talking about 
trying to have difficult conversations with people, those are very self-control depleting. Mm. Dieting, just a drop mm. in your normal glucose level mm -hmm. can deplete your self-control. So being aware of what's happening in your body, I think, is very important mm -hmm. to know, okay, I've just driven home in traffic. I may not feel like my self-control mm -hmm. is going to be depleted, but just knowing it probably is, why don't I take a few moments before I go into the house to do some breathing? Mm. Because unfortunately, when we get our self-control depleted, we can be like a, a two-year-old who wants to you know, stay up and watch TV. Mm. He's having a tantrum. He just wants more stimulation, but that's actually not what the brain needs. It needs quiet. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that is actually rare in our culture. This is amateur hour I'm going to give you right now, but I know between the amygdala is the fight-or-flight part of your mm -hmm. brain, right? And it's a very small part of your brain, but under stress, it just floods the entire engine. And so you can't get to the is it the, the frontal cortex yes, where, where you, you have logic and decision-making and you just literally can't access it because your brain is so flooded. So what I'm hearing you saying is your brain is having to work hard in the self-control world right. until it doesn't and road rage shows up because the outcome of bad traffic and self-control and trying to work within the rules is road rage, potentially. Just pull over, take a few moments to let your brain cool down so that you can make better choices. Right. I mean, if you can stop for a few minutes before you get home, mm -hmm. because what you said about flooding, mm -hmm. these chemicals in the system are, for the brain, they essentially take out the frontal lobes. They put you in this fight-or-flight mechanism, mm -hmm. which can be driven by the amygdala. So to counteract all that adrenaline circulating in your system, it doesn't go away instantly. Mm -hmm. Typically, adrenaline is usually for use in the large muscle groups. Mm -hmm. So going for a run, if you can do any physical exercise, and that's very, very helpful, even go for a walk, do some deep breathing, mm -hmm. do some things that will try to dissipate some of that adrenaline, mm -hmm. will help you then get your frontal lobes back online to make healthier decisions. It is the executive mm -hmm. control center. You don't want to be operating out of fight or flight. When somebody does something, you're immediately going to think they did that on purpose. So back to just a practical situation, if I come in to the house and that's the state I'm in, it's not going to be before long before I trigger that in someone else. And now you're in the crazy cycle. Now it's like everybody's acting from a position of stress. Everybody's acting from a position of their brain is flooded and there's no logic in the conversation. It's just all, as you said, it's like a temper tantrum that meets each other. And so I just think it's back to the surgery room. I'd imagine this is something that, you know, it takes a while to perfect or I wouldn't even say perfect, but just become aware of in the first place. How long does it take you to kind of get from this point of realizing you're flooded, you're in a bad spot, it's the impact of stress, to kind of having sort of a handle on it? Well, what you said is called emotional contagion. Your emotions are contagious for the other people around you. And is that positive or negative? It can be both, actually. That's the thing about our emotions. They have quite a power over mm -hmm. the... You know, some people walk in a room and their joy and their happiness sort of bubbles over, but a depressed person will really... Yeah, bring it down. Bring it down. Mm -hmm. So there you are in the surgery room. You've got a bleed on the table. Things aren't going well. The way the mind works, the mind is a pattern recognition machine. Mm. So it's recognizing, have I seen this before? And what happened last time this happened? So it stores the memory, whether it's good or bad. It's that quick. That quick. Now, it's a pattern recognition machine, but it's interesting that... Not all patterns are the same, and it hasn't learned that necessarily. It remembers not 
the last bleed you had, but the last bleed you had perhaps that died. Mm -hmm. You know, you're walking in the woods and you see what you think is a snake and you jump back and your heart starts pounding, but it's just a stick. Mm -hmm. See, it's recognizing a pattern, but it's not always correct. This may not be the one that's going to die, but it still floods you as if... It could happen. And this can happen in relationships. You can see a person that reminds you of somebody Mm. and you don't trust them. Mm. Could be a pattern recognition. You say, oh, I've seen this before. And we think that we're so smart and we're very convinced that our brain has picked up the correct pattern and it may not be so. Wow. I mean, it's a lot to process, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if your brain can process that fast from past experiences, past emotions, assign it to something like a twig that's a snake, I think it's kind of a harder thing to do to slow down, to take the time to breathe. And today's world, it just feels like things are going faster, right? We've got more things coming at us. One of the things you were talking to me about was the impact of like what's happening with our phones and our brains. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because I know all of us are checking them and it does have an impact on our brain, right? Absolutely. These phones, it's like a mini casino. And the casino, they actually did some very interesting work with monkeys. They were actually able to measure these dopamine neurons, these neurons in the brain. That Dopamine is the, the chemical that gives you this good feeling. It's our motivating chemical. Mm. They would give them a drop of apple juice when they got the correct answer. If they missed the answer they would not get any apple juice. And then at one point, they got the correct answer but didn't get apple juice. It started becoming variable. It became like a casino. They didn't know if they got the right answer, if Mm. they were going to get the juice or not. What they found is their brains sort of went on overdrive. Mm -hmm. They were so excited about if this was going to be the one that they were going to get. So that's the way a casino works. You don't know if you pull the handle on the slot machine, if this is going to be the one that you win big. And so it's an addiction. Mm. So with our phones, every time it dings, is that your, Mm. you know, your ship coming in? Is that, (laughs) you know, is it the the letter you wanted? Is it the text you wanted? Is your friend going to be able to meet you? Did somebody like something on Facebook? Do they like my post? Exactly. Did they like my Instagram? You know, I saw something here recently. There was a documentary that 60 Minutes did. The title of it was Brain Hacking. Anybody who's listening here should check it out. Where computer scientists are now studying neurology and how the brain works, and they're lining up the technology so that they can create this, what you're saying with the monkeys. It's like, we're going to do this, and we're going to get you to interact. We're going to engage, we're going to do this. It just seems like the world is moving faster. And uh, what I'm hearing you say as well is if we're not dealing with the stress, it does manifest itself in illness. It does. You know, I mean, you've talked about how it affects back pain, and you don't know why your back is hurting you. You know, haven't worked out in a week, and haven't done this. I was curious, is there any correlation between... If you're living this type of lifestyle, not only is it going to show up as a back or a knee pain or something like that, but does it actually damage your brain? I don't know that anyone can do a specific study on stress because everyone has so much of it, it's very hard to get people without it to do a a scientific study. But Mm -hmm. what we see is that stress, we know people, for instance, with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a lot of stress. They have adrenaline all the time. They come back from war. What we find is there actually is shrinkage of parts of the brain. Mm. that long-term living under chronic stress seems to shrink parts of your brain. That's mm. absolutely true. Wow. Obviously, it's just at the very least, if we're in this constant state of stress, we're not doing our brains any favors. Right. And just doing these practical things, like maybe stay off the phone a little bit longer if you can. You say, go for a workout. How long do I need to breathe for deep breathing? Like, <laughs> Just let me know what I need to do here, Doc. Well, the first thing I would recommend is is considering... You know, it's a, it's, it's a spiritual term, but the word is Sabbath, some sort of time mm. off during the week. Are you giving yourself mm. and your brain a break 
from your normal sources of dopamine. Mm. We are not meant to be stimulated every moment of every day. Mm -hmm. 95% of people, even though we know it's not good for us, are on their technology, their phones, looking at the screen within an hour of sleeping. Mm. We know that's unhealthy. Mm. We know you're not going to sleep as well if you're looking at your screen, but 95% or higher of people are looking at their phones or a television, something right before bed. So finding time for a Sabbath, finding time to let yourself be quiet. Can you be quiet, first of all? I mean, the breathing is, I would say, the second choice. You need it, but I think if you can at all take some time off, give yourself a day, give yourself 24 hours, not just on a vacation where mm -hmm. most of us sort of get antsy and you know, we're mm -hmm. just checking our phones anyway. Mm -hmm. Can you once a week take some time to go for a walk, to go for a run, to do something? Can you be in the quiet? Mm. Because quiet does something to your brain. Most of us can't take quiet. As soon as we get in the car, on goes the radio, mm -hmm. something we're always stimulating. Maybe it's because there are thoughts we don't want to think. Mm. And so I think so much of our stress, we think it comes from these behavioral problems, but I think that the behavioral problems, you know, always on the phone, always with music, always with something going, always with stimulation, has to do with the fact that we're probably have poor relationships. We're not handling things as well as we think, and we're overstimulating ourselves. Hmm. Now, that's you know a whole other area, but you know, you're asking a couple of things. One is what to do about it. So yes, there are breathing exercises to do. You know, 12 minutes is probably a good start. If you can breathe, if you start for five minutes doing just some... Deep breathing. Deep breathing. One of the breathing techniques is synchronized breathing. Can you breathe? And that's some of the information I've got on my website, but can you breathe in a synchronized fashion, either every three seconds, every four seconds, or every five, whatever your breathing rate is, mm -hmm. but in a consistent fashion, it tells the brain, tells the body, oh, there must be no danger here. You mm -hmm. can relax. Mm -hmm. Because typically when you're excited, you're breathing erratically. Mm -hmm. You're breathing one second in, three seconds out, you know, that big sigh, whew, that's usually telling you mm. you've been holding your breath. You've not been breathing huh. in a peaceful, synchronized way. Wow. Most of us do a lot of sighing. Yeah, that is the body letting us know something. It's releasing something. It's like the pressure cooker releasing the pressure. You've been holding your breath. Exactly, mm. exactly. And so these synchronized breathing, also belly breathing. Most of us breathe from the chest. So we are not getting a full breath. Mm. We're breathing shallowly from the chest, which actually is dumping in more adrenaline into our system. As you breathe from your belly, and what I mean is when you take a breath in, your abdomen expands. The diaphragm, which is right under the lungs, is dropping down. So as you take in a belly breath and you start to breathe from the belly, it also tells your brain, must be no danger here. We're relaxing. We've got plenty of oxygen. Plenty of oxygen. Time to relax. So you know, those are some of the techniques. Belly breathing, synchronized breathing, but in an atmosphere where you have some quiet time. You've built in some quiet time mm -hmm. into your schedule where... This is good for me. And if the problem is, just like a two-year-old, he doesn't think rest is good for him. Mm -hmm. But the brain needs the stimulation, but it then needs the quiet. And it also, most of us, if we start to breathe that way, we're actually going to fall asleep. Yep. Which is telling us something. Probably we're not getting enough sleep. Wow. You know, sleep is not this quiet as I'm talking about. So here's what I'm hearing you say. If number one is, the hierarchy would be create some space, Right. Get some quiet time. Go for a walk, go for a run, and then just get some quiet time. Do some deep breathing. Limit the stimulation before bed. Maybe an hour or two before bed, just knock it all off. And then just kind of try to 
restrain a little bit from the technology more than you usually do. That seems like a pretty good list so far. And I would even say that with the technology, because it's so addictive, you just have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Mm. What you'll notice, I can tell you what I notice, I'm, you know, get off a difficult phone call and right away I'm checking my email. Yep. Why am I doing that? Something in the call made me insecure and I actually want to mm. divert my attention now. So part of this is about knowing yourself. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Because these things are so convenient now mm -hmm. to divert our attention, but to be able to say, oh, I see, must have been something in that phone call. Mm -hmm. What was it that's really, and let's look more closely at that. Let's do a... a like an analysis of it. It's, like it's a reflection, because mm -hmm. you don't learn unless you reflect, right? You said something too, and I'm, it's the R word, relationships. Mm. It seems that you know, it's even contagious, you know, the housewives of New York and Orange County and the relational aspects and people like eat that stuff up. You know, we're in holiday season right now and there's a lot of family relationships getting around the table. What typically happens in those scenarios with the brain and, and have you any advice for <laughs> on the relational aspect and the importance of relationships? What does that do to our brain and how can we do better in that area? Well, the brain actually learns best, or actually develops best in an atmosphere of joy and joy is actually found in relationship mm. these substitutes that we have for relationship including our cell phones including all that stimulation ideally if you look at a child what are they looking for watch me they're looking actually if you see one on the airplane they're actually looking for your eyes they're mm -hmm. looking for eyes because the eye is the window to the soul so mm. to be in a relationship they want a connection they want you to see them but they're also looking at you so we all need that, and we're all longing for that. Now, mm -hmm. typically in our family of origin, if we didn't get that, we're going to start looking for other things to fill that. We're mm -hmm. going to be looking for... The wrong type of attention. The wrong type of attention, thank you. And then typically that ends up causing us more problems. Mm -hmm. So ultimately we do want connection, and we want it with family. So that makes holidays very stressful because somewhere deep inside of us, our expectation mm -hmm. is this year it's going to happen. Yeah. This year we're going to get it. We've been looking for it all our lives, but this year they're going to recognize I'm special. Mm -hmm. Well, every year you think that. And every year Aunt Sally says, oh, you're losing some more hair this year. And, and uh, I see you're gaining a little weight. And so all of a sudden we get, and it catches us off guard every year, and we go home every year disappointed. Mm. And so I think some part of this is, number one, controlling your expectations. They probably haven't changed. Mm-hmm. Can you change? Is there a way you mm -hmm. can enjoy them better where they are? Mm -hmm. Is there a way that you can not take offense when she comments or you know, your uncle gets drunk or whatever it is that happens at your family gatherings? The attention goes to different places and people get very, very judgmental, I think. I can't get something from somebody they don't know that I need. Right. Right. And someone wants to come in and go, I need all your attention. You know, and so if relationships are so important to our brain, and so what I'm hearing is have very low expectations, but also if that's a need, then give people the attention they need. Thank so you. you can give them the attention. There you, go. you can look them in the eye. You can say, not focus on the loss of hair, but you can say, it's so great to see you. Yeah. What's going on? And be the giver of that rather than have to be the disappointed person who didn't receive and now is going home. Because I hear you saying a two year old, a seven year old, a tantrum. And, you know, I know we're talking about children here, but we're not. <laughs> Look, you're going to holiday parties, you're going to family parties, you've got friends, you've got colleagues. Everyone's going looking for the same thing. They want some attention. And they want attention from the important people. Mm 
Mm. What if you went this year and said, I wonder if I could bless somebody? Mm. And what I would even do, I even say a prayer before I go and God, send me someone mm. that needs a good word from me. Mm. So now I'm not going in for me anymore. I'm actually going for someone. It may not be the person who's driving the nicest car. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be the one everyone else wants their attention from. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go, and then I'm going to go home, and I'm going to feel like, did I accomplish my goal? Did I bless somebody at that party this year? (laughs) And that, for me, has worked out fabulously because Aunt Sally is still going to comment on something negative about me, but I'm going to smile and look for the person who's over in the corner, maybe, you know, the girl who's got, you know, the cousin who's got the new tattoo or something, and I'm going to go ask her about that. (laughs) Yeah, rather than judge us. Exactly. <laughs> Be curious. Obviously, you're artistic. Tell me why you chose mm-hmm. that particular style. Wow. Well, that's good stuff. It's a lot of work to be intentional. It feels like I'm preparing for brain surgery, <laughs> and I'm going to operate on my own first, and then I've got to consider other people's. But it's the same thing. Right? You don't go into a surgery unprepared. That's right. You that's don't go right. into operate on the brain unprepared, and all of this stuff, the quiet time, the breathing, it's preparing your brain for brain health, but also good interactions. You know, on the relational side of things, and one thing we talked about at breakfast, and it kind of kicks over from the holiday table, you know, and I think the expectations are always higher the closer the relationship, right? Because you're like, hey, we love each other. We're family. I expect that from you. And it hurts more. They said that, you know, the Civil War, United States, but more Americans died in the Civil War than all the other wars combined. Mm. And it was father against son and brother against brother. And they reckon it was such a bloody war was because of that very fact the expectation was we're supposed to be loving each other, not fighting. So when that came down to us, they fought even harder. You know, one of the things I want to mention as well about family relationships is sarcasm. Mm -hmm. I think sarcasm is those comments like, oh, you know, smooth move and someone drops a glass or, Mm -hmm. you know, breaks something or, uh, oh, you did it again this year. Actually, the word sark is flesh, chasm is is a divide, like flesh tearing. Hmm. And this is the number one thing that breaks up marriages. It's actually sarcasm. So it's very subtle, and you're supposed to take it as a joke. And this is our method of communication, most of our families, is teasing each other, is putting each other down and using sarcasm as a form of communication. And it's very, very destructive. And they are going to do it to you, but what if this year you didn't do it? Hmm. What if this year you actually gave a good compliment? Because you don't know it may be the last time Hmm. you see them. So to say, you know what, all these years we get together, I appreciate, you know, how sensitive you are about what a good provider you've been for your family, what a good mother you've been to your children. Mm -hmm. You are going to come with compliments this year instead of with sarcasm and with jokes and with judging other people, putting other people down or talking about something that that has no no redeeming value. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard the power of even just people writing meaningful letters like that to someone else for them to read. Good. And what it does for people. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you spent your Thanksgiving holiday party season times doing these kind of things, I, I think it would be very productive. And as a blessing flows through you, you pick up some of that blessing as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're in a world today, too, where, you know, I've been on a Facebook fast now for quite a while, and it's fantastic. And even a news fast. And oh. I take news fasts a lot because. It seems like the world is getting more dogmatic and nobody's listening to the other person. It's Mm. just, you know, I'm sure it's been around forever. You talk to me about the impact of conversation on the brain, where people not being curious with each other. Could you talk about that a little bit? Most of us think that the purpose of a conversation is agreement. And so 
we're actually trying aggressively to get the other person to agree with us. What we're not doing is actually trying to understand how they came up with their viewpoint. And so this is a politics, this is religion, this is these very hot-button topics. Mm -hmm. But to be able to say, can you help me understand how you arrived at that? Now, the thing about these conversations, they're very, very good for the brain. If you can talk with someone who doesn't agree with you, Mm -hmm. and you can do it without anger, and you can do it without emotion. The problem is you get into a conversation and on politics or religion, you're going to usually have more heat than light. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the problem is we get excited about things that mean a lot to us. That's part of the, the issue of stress we talked about earlier. The reason you have stress, ultimately, is because whatever it is that you're stressed about, it actually means something to you. That's your passion. It's important to you that your will works out in that situation. Mm-hmm. So stress is caused actually by meaning, which is a good thing. So the fact that you're so angry or irritated is it, unfortunately that anger keeps you from learning, mm. from learning that someone else may have a valid point of view and some information that could help you. That's right. So it shuts your brain down basically. Yeah. So most people, when they start to discuss politics, religion, the anger actually shuts it down and you end up sort of so angry with the other person or the candidate or God or whatever it is that you're not actually listening to. Well, mm-hmm. you know, how did you arrive at that idea that there is no God? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can't prove it. I can't prove there is one. But uh, we both arrived at the opposite conclusions mm-hmm. living in the same world. Help me understand. And I'm not threatened by the fact that somebody doesn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not going to shake my faith. But I'm interested to know how they arrived at that. I may learn something from them that may change the way I see the world, or it may actually change the way I think. So, But back to the going to the family reunion, being interested in others is something that we really desire and need, and we feel better about the interaction, and relationships will be better. And you said your brain will function better because you're learning and taking information that you didn't shut out in the past. That's right. Family relationships also, there's a lot to learn about our origins, about our family, where it came from. I mean, I was just discovering some things recently about, you know, my father, I realized as I was talking to some people, he's been dead a number of years, but realizing he didn't have a lot of confidence. And I had a lot of confidence. Mm. No wonder we were sort of at odds. That makes a lot of sense now. Like, as you look back, the way he was raised is a very shame-based, judgmental system. Knock the confidence out of him. There's no chance the confidence seed grown in that soil. Right. And so it actually gave me compassion for him, which I think helps us forgive our parents, which I believe is a huge, huge emotional, physical, and psychological release. That's what Mm. most of us... We're still holding on to the fact that they didn't do it right and they owe me. And mm. the fact of the matter is, you know, they did the best they could with what they had, probably made some mistakes. Look at their parents. Mm. My father's it was atrocious. He grew up in the wartime. There was no love for anybody. No survival. It's all survival. They can't give you what they don't have. Mm. But you can get it now. Wow. But you can't get it from them. Mm. You're going to need to get it some other places. And so, but you can accept that they gave you the best they could. There you go. And by giving grace to them, this is how it works. The principle, right? We honor our parents, and then somehow we give grace to them, and you get it back. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, judge not that you not be judged. (laughs) And the measure you measure, it's measured to Mm -hmm. you. So as we measure out grace to our parents, guess what? I don't have to sit in shame and guilt anymore when I make mistakes, which I will. And so the very essence of that is then essentially you're retaining information here in your brain 
that's connected to an emotion. So you're walking around angry. You're walking around bitter. And again, neurologically, your brain is not firing in the way it should be. That's right. And forgiveness, I should mention. Forgiveness is not saying it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Sweeping under, oh, just get Ignore over it. it. Yeah. Ignore it, get over it. didn't matter. It wasn't evil, what some people have been through. or It, mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't wrong. Oh. It's just saying, I'm not going to look to them to pay that debt anymore. Can the brain heal? Can it recover? Can it become more vibrant? You know, it can atrophy, I'm sure. Like what you said, yeah. conversation will shrink. Is it something that you're like, you can put it on a workout program again and get it Absolutely. really firing? But Absolutely. it takes a lot of work. It does. And think about it. Habits don't come easy. And bad habits are hard to break. So having an accountability partner, someone mm-hmm. who says, this is important. You know, let's check up on each other next week. Did you take 12 minutes a day? Mm-hmm. in quiet did you do your breathing mm-hmm. every day did you do your exercise every exercise is very very good for the brain in fact it stimulates growth factors for the brain so mm-hmm. by exercising by eating healthy food yeah diet what's the impact of diet right now on the brain yeah i mean processed foods are just terrible for the brain it really you know what all happens? the sugar that we're eating it just doesn't function well it spikes the blood sugar secretes insulin all of that stuff the brain just doesn't it likes a kind of a steady state and by all these you know the donuts the fast food the hamburger buns, we're getting a lot of spikes in our blood sugar and and the brain just craves more of it, Mm. which is not really good. So eating healthy fats, plant-based diet, I think is is healthy. I mean, source your food. Know where your food is coming from. Mm. We want to know if it's an animal, what was it eating that Mm. we're eating? Get some idea of where your food is coming from. I think that's what I would recommend. Wow. It is a full-time job, but the benefits are tremendous. They are. Well, so good. I could talk to you for another couple of hours. There's a lot to take in here, but I really appreciate in our conversations, the effort it took you to become a neurosurgeon and to do it for so many years and the complexity of it. But for you to be able to break it down into very practical ways so that we don't end up on the operating table, we don't end up on the medication. You know, what I feel in you is that you've left that world because I think you want to be even more preventative for people so they don't have to end up in the surgery they don't have to end up on the prescription medication they don't have to end up in the wrong world and I know that's kind of the future for you that's why you're going out and you're speaking around the world and is that it? Is it that is what... I, want, I want people to be able to actually change the way their mind works the way their brain works the way their mind works and some of that we just try to change our thoughts but much of it is changing our physiology changing our belief system our relationships feed into that. It's mm-hmm. it's multifactorial, but I think it's, I wouldn't say more valuable, but is at least as valuable, and I'm certainly drawn to it. It's, I think, my destiny. It's where I want to go. Well, you've brought out a book called Gray Matter. It's a bestseller. People can pick that up on Amazon if they want to learn some more about your world and a little bit more about you. Where else can they go to find out some more information about your work? Well, I've got a website, drdlevy.com. I've got some resources on there. I'm just starting to do some breathing techniques, breathing counts, and then I've got some some melodies. I've actually started doing some some singing on there because song and melodies seem to help us change the way we think and the way we breathe. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes you're, you're on the road and you put on a good song and you belt one out, and even if nobody's hearing you, you feel better after singing your favorite song, so that makes sense. Well, we have a tradition here. We have some rapid-fire questions I want to ask you. Are you up for that? I'm up for it. All right. Here's the first one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Best piece of advice I've ever been given is to know, know your own motivations, to know why you do what you do. Because if you can get to the base of your motivation, it may not be what you think it is, but if you know your motivations, it, it makes you a student of yourself. It makes you wise. Mm. You can also pick up what mm. other people's motivations might be and the fact that they may not match your motivation. 
Well, so think it through. Think it through. Oh, that's good. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? It would have to be with music. I'm singing, but I would love to be able to sing with greater range. Nice. All right. Well, that's good. That's a good goal. What book has been most instrumental in your life? Well, I do love reading the Bible, but the second book, I would say, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge was a, just allowing me to see sort of the masculine journey mm -hmm. and some of these things we talked about, mm -hmm. fathering and how that changes the way we see the world. Mm, that's a great book. What's your favorite song? Well, my wife and I love to listen to Handel's Messiah. We just listen to it uh, over and over, and especially this season that's coming up, we enjoy it. That's good. So you can belt one out to that. That'll that, be a good one to oh, yeah. sing along to. <laughs> what movie do you watch over and over again, or is there one that's your favorite? You know, I actually watch very few movies now. I've really backed off mm. from the TV and the movie thing. When I was watching movies, the one I enjoyed most was uh, The Matrix. I really enjoyed mm -hmm. that concept of the world and what you see may not actually be reality. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks a million. You've given me certainly a lot to think about. I know there's a lot of folks listening on the podcast today who hopefully have got a lot of a lot of notes here from this podcast, but I really appreciate how you've shared it. It's all so practical. And I wish you every success in your work, speaking and helping people. And I know that's your heart. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on here. So thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and of yourself. So thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great to be with you. Thank you. All right. God bless. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. And we're also on Android. So download your favorite app from Google Play and tune in for free. We love hearing your feedback, and your reviews help to let us know the kind of stuff you're enjoying. Our goal is to positively influence as many people as we can, so please share it with others. And as I finish today, I'll leave you with an Irish blessing our grandfather always said. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.